The words to which I should like to call your attention this evening are to be found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, the 17th chapter, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8, from verse 5 to verse 8, in the 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the men that, maketh, that trusteth in men, and maketh flesh his arm, whose heart departeth from the Lord. For he shall be like the heath in the desert, and shall not see when good cometh, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness, in a salt land and not inhabited. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. For he shall be as a tree planted by the waters, and that spreadeth out her roots by the river, and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, and shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. Now I want particularly tonight to take verses 5 and 7, the 5th verse and the 7th verse, in this 17th chapter of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in men, and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord, and whose hope the Lord is. We began the consideration of this little paragraph last Sunday evening, and we saw together that it is a statement which was made by the prophet Jeremiah to the children of Israel. God gave him this word and sent him to speak this word to these recalcitrant children of Israel. We pointed out the peculiar difficulty of Jeremiah's position. He was a lone voice. All the false prophets were saying something very different. Everything seemed to them to be going well. But the message given to this man of God by God himself was that things in a sense had never been worse. All appearances to the contrary. And that he was to give a final warning to the children of Israel. But alas, you remember, they wouldn't listen to him. They persisted on their evil way. They pursued their evil course still. And eventually they were overwhelmed as God had warned them they would be in disaster and were carried away into the captivity of Babylon. Now, the first thing we noted was this, that this is a very perfect description of precisely what the Christian church is called upon to do still. This is still God's message to men. The circumstances, as I hope to show you, are almost identical. And as I was emphasizing last Sunday evening, our only right to speak thus is that we do so on the authority of God himself. This book we claim is God's book. It is God's word. We gave you some reasons for saying that last Sunday evening. It is the whole position. Thus saith the Lord. That is the uniqueness of the Christian position that we don't claim that we have simply meditated about life and are giving expression to our conclusions. We claim that this is a word from God, God's unique authoritative word, and we have no other basis. If this isn't accepted, therefore, with that authority, well, very well, I have no more to say. Indeed, I would like to put my message like that again. Here are we all of us in this world of time. We are conscious of troubles and of difficulties. And we're all seeking some solution to our problems. And we are still confronted this evening as these children of Israel were of old by two possibilities only. We either take this message or else we believe any other message. And it doesn't matter what else it may be. It isn't God's. It's either God's message, thus saith the Lord, or else it isn't. Now, here all that is put to us in a particularly clear manner. 
It's not uh, unique in that respect. Indeed, this, uh, in a sense, is uh, the great message of the Bible from cover to cover. You notice that all along we are presented by but two alternatives, whether it's in the Old Testament or in the New. It is either blessing or cursing. It is either God or memory. It is either the straight gate or the wide gate. It's the narrow way or the broad way. It's either or. It's one or the other. There is heaven, there is hell. Now, the Bible, I say, is constantly emphasizing that particular thing. It is the very essence of its entire message. And it asks us to listen to it for this reason. That our whole eternal future is dependent upon our reaction and our response to this message. That is what makes a meeting such as this the most solemn thing in which one can ever be engaged. Here we are in the midst of life. We are so uncertain about it all. We don't know how long we're going to be here. Life is utterly out of our hands. We can't predict, we can't prophesy. We don't know. And while we are here in such an uncertain life and such an uncertain world, the tremendous thing the Bible tells us is that we are determining our eternal destiny. And it's going to be one of these two. It's either going to be blessing or else it's going to be cursing. And that goes on forever and forever, with no end whatsoever. That is eternity. And here at this moment, as we live in this world, and share its ups and downs and become immersed in its business and in its affairs, all that is being determined. So the Bible calls us solemnly and seriously to face and to consider these things. And therefore we should thank God that he puts it so plainly and so clearly as he does in a message such as that which we are looking at together once more this evening. Now let me put it to you like this. Is it not perfectly clear and obvious as we look at the modern world that it cannot be described as a state of blessing? The world is obviously not being blessed at the present time. There are wars and rumors of wars. There is trouble. There is confusion. There is unhappiness. The nations are arming. They're divided into two rival camps. Dread possibilities are constantly being held before us. Now, this is not a state of blessing. The world is in a state of tension. It's in a state of great unhappiness. It's obvious that things are not as they're meant to be. And the great question that confronts us is, why is this the case? What is the matter? Why is the world as it is? Why has the story of mankind and the world been exactly what we know it from our history books to have been? Why is it, as you look back and read the long story, that it is very largely the story of troubles and of wars and of trials and of unhappiness and of sorrow? Now, that's the big question. That is the great question. And I suggest to you that that is the question with which we should always start. In other words, uh, we must not rush at some, some easy solution. We mustn't rush at some temporary ease. The history of the world teaches us that again, that there are always agencies in the world that are always offering us a temporary way out and some assuagement of our anguish. But surely the essence of wisdom, according to the scriptures, is to discover the real cause of it all. The world wasn't meant to be like this. We were reminded in our reading at the beginning tonight that the world was not always like this. The world was once in a condition that can be described as paradise, and yet it ceased to be that. You remember that third chapter of Genesis told us that there was a time when there were no thorns and thistles, when men did not have to eat his bread by the sweat of his brow, the condition was entirely different from that, but it became that. And it became what it is tonight, and it has continued like that ever since. 
So I say the great question confronting us is, why is the world like this? And why is any individual unhappy, ill at ease, tormented in mind and heart, conscious of things that are unworthy and vile and foul, unhappy, full of fears and of forebodings? What's the cause of it all? Well, there is but one answer to that question if you accept this teaching. And it is, of course, something that we can put into one word, and that one word is the word sin. There's no other answer. There is no other explanation. It's no use our being told that the world can be explained in terms of some supposed evolutionary hypothesis or something like that, because there's no evidence of it. The whole trend seems at the moment to be in the opposite direction. If we are going upwards steadily, why are things as they are? No, no, there is only one adequate answer, and that is the answer given here. This is sin. And this is the only adequate explanation of life from the very beginning. It's the only way to understand the history of the world and of the nations of the world, as well as of individuals who have lived in the world. Now, the Bible teaches this everywhere. We've already seen it in our reading as it happened to men at the very beginning. There was men in a state of blessing, enjoying communion with God, enjoying his life here in the world, enjoying the fruit of the garden, taking it simply, gathering his food and eating it and enjoying it in a state of perfect bliss. And God blessed him and smiled upon him. But oh, what a terrible change took place. And what is the explanation? Well, it's, it's just sin, you see. Sin came in in that way. That was the entry of sin and evil into life. And it just ruined and spoiled everything. You hurry on through the history and you come to the history of the flood. Things had become so terrible that God destroyed the ancient world. What was the cause of that? Why did the deluge descend? Why was the ancient world destroyed? There's only one answer, and it's still sin. It had become so terrible. Every imagination of the thought of man's heart had become evil. It was so rampant that God said, I will destroy the world that I have made. And I could take you through the whole of the Old Testament history, and you'll find the same thing everywhere. But it's nowhere to be seen more clearly than it is in the case of these children of Israel. You remember their story? God took that man Abram and turned him into a nation. He said, now you are my people. Above all the nations that are in the world, my affection is set upon you. I am going to be your God and you shall be my people. And there he confronts them with the two possibilities. You remember? He put it in terms of messages that came from two mountains, Ebal and Gerizim. It's going to be either blessing or else cursing, said God to these people. He said to them quite plainly, if you obey my commandments and keep my laws, blessing, I will bless you. On the other hand, he said, if you don't, well then, I will curse you. You can find it all in detail in the book of Deuteronomy. Read it, for it's so full of instruction. His own chosen people whom he'd formed and fashioned for himself, in whom his heart delighted. He said, it's going to be one of these two, according to your response to me. That's how they began, but you see, here in this book of Jeremiah, we come to their end. And the end, as I've reminded you, was that the Chaldean armies came and surrounded their city and smashed the walls, ruined their defenses, entered in, smashed their temple and everything else, and carried them away to the captivity of Babylon. What was the matter? Why did God's chosen people come to such a fate and to such an end? There's only one answer. It's still the same. It's sin, my friends. It's the thing God had warned them about. And I say once more that this is the whole message of the Bible. That if we live a life of sin, we shall always come to such an end. 
facing us tonight as they face the children of Israel in the brightness and the glory of their beginning are the two dread possibilities, blessing, cursing. And they're inevitable and they're unavoidable. It has to be one or the other. Well, now then, here they're set before us in this comparison that Jeremiah gives us in these verses. We are left, I say, without any excuse. There's no difficulty in recognizing the difference. He describes two men to us. The man who's cursed, the man who's blessed. Blessed, cursed be the man that trusteth in men, etc. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. They're absolutely different. There is no mean between two opposites. There is no middle position between Christian or non-Christian. It's one or the other. And eternity depends upon it. So that the tremendous question we all have to ask ourselves at this point is just this. In which of these two positions do I find myself? Am I going on to blessing or to cursing? Am I being blessed at this hour? Is my life being blessed? Can I say that my life at the moment is one of blessing? And when the hymn comes to me saying to me, count your blessings, name them one by one, can I do so? And am I surprised at what God has done to me and for me? Or else do I know nothing about this? And is my life in trouble constantly? And am I ill at ease and unhappy? Well, in order to help to answer that question, let me hold these two pictures before you. How can I know, says someone, whether I am in sin or not? How can I tell whether it is because I am a sinner that my life is as it is? People seem to be in difficulty about this. They say they find it difficult to know whether they are sinners or not. Well, let's take Jeremiah's description and definition of the life and the condition of men in sin. It's here in just a few words. Cursed be the men that trusteth in men and maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. What a description, what an analysis. You see, according to the prophet here, and it is the teaching of the scriptures everywhere, sin is a terrible thing. You can read in your newspapers and in other places about various diseases and pestilences and the horrible effects they have upon men and the ravages that they produce. But nothing has ever entered into this world that has done such damage and has wrought such havoc as this terrible thing which is called sin. It is the fellest and the foulest canker that has ever entered into life. What does it do? Well, according to this description, it is something that affects the whole of men. It produces the total ruin of men. It produces entire corruption. There is not a part of men or of his life, but that it is affected and corrupted and polluted and perverted by sin. Now, I know people don't like this doctrine of sin today. They say, ah, oh, but it's always this sin. My dear friend, I emphasize the doctrine of sin for this reason, that it's only the man who realizes that he's sick who goes to his physician. It is because I know that there are so many people who die who needn't, in a sense, have died if they'd only gone to the physician earlier. It is in any way the very essence of man's trouble. It is the thing that brings curse upon him. You see, there it is all in that story at the very beginning. Men fell because he began by querying God, putting up his questions against God. Men, as it were, began to think for himself, in the sense that he was no longer content to think God's thoughts after him, and to realize that nothing is greater than to be thinking God's thoughts. Men's troubles have all come out of the fact that men set himself up as an autonomous being, that is the very essence of sin. According to the scriptures, according to this word of the Lord, man was made by God and for God. 
And he was made in such a way that he was to be dependent upon God and his whole life to be conditioned by God. And the very source and fount of sin is the step which man took when he stepped out of that relationship and set himself up in an autonomous manner and said, I henceforth am going to think my own thoughts as over against God's thoughts. What I think and what I say is the thing that is right. You see, it starts in man's mind. Cursed be the men that trusteth in men. I can't imagine any phrase that is, describes this present century so perfectly and so adequately. Things are as they are in our world tonight, my dear friends, because man has made himself the center of the universe. There's no question about that. That isn't just a dogmatic statement. It's something I could prove to you very easily. You look at the thinking of mankind this evening apart from Christianity and you will, you will find invariably that man is made the center of the universe. Everything starts with men and ends with men. Man is as self-centered as this and has put himself at the center of the universe to this extent that if he does think about God at all, he's only prepared to do so as someone who may be able perhaps to give him, man, a little bit of help. He doesn't object to, to God as someone who's able to help him and to aid him and to grant him certain blessings when he needs them. But the idea of God as the center of the universe and man as but one of the subject creatures has been entirely dismissed. Man no longer trusts in God. He trusts in men. He thinks that man is self-sufficient. He believes that man is self-contained. And all his thinking and all his planning and all his meditation revolves around himself. I mustn't keep you with this. But it is a most essential preliminary point. And it's a question, therefore, which we must all ask ourselves. What is at the center of our thinking this evening? Is it God or is it man? As you think of the world and its future and its course and what's going to happen, as you try even to grapple with its problems, does God come in? And if he does, is he central? Is he primary? Or is it man? Now, there is no question at all about this, and I think this is practically universally agreed by all so-called philosophers and thinkers. The great characteristic of the last hundred years has been that man has been placed in the center. Self-sufficient men, autonomous men, men has relegated God to the background or, or has tried to dismiss him altogether, and he has believed that he is capable of running his universe in his own way and by his own efforts apart from God. It has affected the mind of men. The moment man is prepared to listen to the question, has God said? He has already set himself up in an autonomous position. So that if we would like to know whether we are guilty of this sin which leads to cursing tonight, one of the simplest ways of answering the question is to discover what is our attitude towards God. What's our attitude towards God's word, to what God has said, to what God has indicated, to God's revelation? The mind of men was involved. He trusts in men. But let me hurry to his will that maketh flesh his own. And again, is there anything that is more characteristic of the modern men than just this? Man's self-confidence in himself. The assurance with which man faces life and himself and the problems of the world. You see, man today rarely does claim, does he not, that his mind is great enough to enable him to understand everything. The modern man, you see, approaches God as a problem. 
God, they say, oh, well, now then, let's consider this. And God is, as it were, put on the table, and the microscope is brought out, and God is dissected and examined. It's man who's doing it. Why? Well, you see, he has such unbounded confidence in his intellect, in his mind, in his understanding. He knows science, he understands mysteries, and he has absolute confidence in his mind, and therefore in his own opinion. I'm not exaggerating. The modern man believes that his mind is so great that there is nothing which he cannot comprehend and span with his intellect. He maketh flesh his own. Not only that, he is quite confident, I say, that uh, he is capable of discovering all knowledge. That there is nothing that lies beyond men's endeavor. Why? He can split the atom, he can give names to the different parts, and he's done all this by the sweat of his own brow. This isn't something that he's inherited or has believed, he's just investigated. And as he claims, he can go on along the same line, and in the end he will have mastered all knowledge. There will be no secrets left, there will be no mysteries remaining. Man with his gigantic brain will have delved out every mystery, and he will have discovered all knowledge. He believes that. He maketh flesh his arm. His confidence in his own ability, I say, knows no bounds whatsoever. Or another way I can put it is this. Man does believe, does he not, that he can really accomplish anything that he desires and that he can bring to pass anything that he is determined to do. It's only a question of time, he says. It's only a question of determination. It's only a question of desiring to do it. This kind of thing is shouting at us from our newspapers and all the books. The world says to us, believe in yourself. Believe that you can do it and you'll do it. That's its whole modern philosophy. And it really does believe it. It believes that man can accomplish anything if he really simply sets his heart upon it and is determined to do it. And so, of course, man has been most self-confident during this last hundred years in believing that he can solve all his own problems, that he can deliver himself from all his miseries and set himself free from all his ills. Now, when I say that, I'm not thinking of the political parties and what they're going to say and have already said in connection with this forthcoming election. You see, there's no real difference between any parties. They're all the same. What they're all really saying is that they can solve all the problems. And it doesn't matter that they contradict one another. They're both of them guilty of this same basic error. Anybody who believes that men, by legislation or by rearranging conditions or by anything else that he may do, can really solve the problem of life in this world, is making flesh his own. I don't care whether he says that this way or that way is the way to do it. Whether this is his economic theory or whether that's his economic theory. The, the fatal error is to believe that man can do it. That men can, I say, rid the world of its curse. That men can produce a state of perfect happiness. That he can abolish all misery, all unhappiness, all need, all want, all rivalry, all jealousy. That he really can legislate in a state of paradise. Now, man really believes that. It's at the back not only of the fatal confidence in politics, but at the perhaps still more fatal confidence in education and knowledge and learning and philosophy. It is this belief that man has always in sin that he can get on without God and that he can manage his own world. You see, the devil put that very proposition there at the beginning to man in the Garden of Eden, and man in his folly believed him. And as you read this long story of the children of Israel, you'll find that it was always that, it always comes back to that. God had said to the children of Israel, as long as you rely upon me, you need fear no enemies. 
But then they begin to say, well, uh, this surely isn't good enough. They say, we notice that the other nations have made themselves great by alliances and by their uh, judicious use of means and by their armies and by the use of horses, and we haven't got any of these things. Uh, we can't succeed like this. We'd better start doing this. And they began to do so, and down they went. It was their confidence in themselves that was always their undoing. And it is still the fatal trouble with men. Let me put it finally in this form. And here perhaps we see it at its supreme point. Men's fatal self-confidence even reaches a point like this. That when modern man is interested in God and believes in God, he believes surely that he himself can make himself fit to stand in the presence of God. There are so many thousands of such people in the world tonight. They say, yes, of course, I believe in God. I've always believed in God and I pray. Well, we say to them, how are you going to stand before God? And they say, well, I'm living a good life and look what I'm doing. He makes flesh his arm. They believe that by doing good works and by avoiding sin and that by being philanthropic and by exercising their minds and by various other things, they can even satisfy the demands of a holy God. Such is men's fatal self-confidence. Cursed be the man that trusteth in men and that maketh flesh his arm. Sin affects a man's mind, it affects his will, and alas, it affects his heart, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. And in many ways, of course, this is the explanation of everything else. It's almost incredible, isn't it, as you read the story, how could Eve and Adam have ever listened to the devil? Living the life that they'd lived until that moment, how could they ever have distrusted God? How could they ever have believed that lie when the devil said to them, Hath God said he shall not eat of this particular tree? And they said, Yes, he has said that. Ah, said the devil to them, Don't believe him. You can eat of this fruit perfectly easily and you shall not die. God has said that to you because he's afraid that you'll become gods, that you'll become like him. You shouldn't believe him. He shouldn't take any notice of that. He's against you. He only wants to keep you down as slaves and as serfs. Don't listen to him. And they believed it. In spite of what they'd experienced, in spite of their lives, in spite of their past, they were ready to believe a lie like this. What's the matter? Their hearts have departed from God. They no longer trust him. They feel that God is against them. They feel that God is opposed to their highest and to their best interests. And men in sin is always like that. I know of nothing more terrible than the way in which people who seem to have believed in God all their lives and have gone to a place of worship, when something goes wrong, one of the first things they say is, why does God allow this? One's constantly hearing it. They seem to turn against God with a sense of grudge. They don't trust him. They believe that he's against them, that he's opposed to their highest and their best interests. That's always true of men in sin. The fact about it is this, that we can go further. Men in sin dislikes God. He hates God. The natural mind is enmity against God. His heart has departed from God to such a sense to, and to such a degree that he hates the very thought of God and the being of God. He wishes that there were no God. The life he'd planned would be a life like this. It would be a life which a man lives in this world and when he dies, that's the end of it all. And there isn't a God and there isn't a judgment. Oh, how mankind would delight if that could be proved to be the case. Why? Well, because it hates God. 
And it always has this feeling that God is somehow against us. They fear God if they believe in him at all. Their hearts have departed from him. My friends, that's the biblical analysis of men in sin. You see, it's a total ruin. There's nothing left that's right. A man's mind, a man's heart, a man's will. Everything is against God. He's opposed to God. Time fails me to note the folly of all this. Can you imagine anything more foolish than man in sin? Isn't it simply monstrous? Isn't it madness? Isn't it stark lunacy that modern man should still put himself at the center? Hasn't he ever read history? Can he really look back across the past 2,000 years, 3,000 years, almost 4,000 years? Can he look back across the history of mankind and still put man at the center? This is lunacy. Can man still have confidence in himself as he looks out upon his modern world? But he does. In spite of the two world wars of this century, in spite of our present troubles, in spite of things being what they are, man still says, I can do it. I'm capable of doing it. I can make the world perfect. I can banish all our troubles. He believes it still. I say there's only one word to apply to that. It's unutterable folly. If we didn't know any history, we might be excused. If the whole story of the past until we came into the world were blotted out and we really knew nothing at all about it and we found ourselves with our present world as it is, well, I suppose in a sense there'd be some excuse for us for saying, well, now then, if we only put our heads together and really face this problem seriously, we can put that right and we can change this and then with a mighty effort we'll get our world perfect. That would be more or less excusable. But we happen to know, don't we, that mankind has been saying that now for nearly 4,000 years and more. He's been saying it from the very moment of the fall. We know the story of Assyria and of Babylon. We know the story of the ancient civilization of China, the ancient civilization of Egypt, the civilization of Greece, the civilization of Rome. We know it all. And yet, in spite of seeing the confidence and the subsequent failure, we are still confident. Man's mad in sin. He can't think. He's a fool. He's a pervert. He's pitting himself against impossibilities. If you don't take my word for it, perhaps you'll take the word of a German philosopher called Hegel, who really wasn't a Christian. And he put it in a famous dictum. We learn from history that we learn nothing from history. If men were only capable of learning from history, he'd never have another war. War never brings anybody any blessing. It's sure madness and lunacy. Every war always leaves the conditions worse than they were before. Every single war that's ever been. And yet men still fight. Why? Because they'll never learn from history. In spite of facts, they still go on repeating this old self-centered self-confidence, this fatal belief that they can suddenly put things right. It is sure madness, lunacy and folly. Oh, and especially when you consider that man in doing all this is pitting himself against the almighty God, the creator of the ends of the world, the God who said, let there be light and there was light. Man, in his unutterable ruin, stands up and says, who is God that I should obey him? Like a foolish wave dashing itself against a rock. Like a fly hurling itself against atomic power. Man the worm defies the Lord God Almighty. Oh, what a terrible thing sin is, my friends. You've seen a poor man ill and in delirium. You've seen a man who's lost his reason. You say, what a tragedy. Look at his false values. It's nothing in comparison with what man in sin believes and does. 
I leave tonight the arrogance involved in it all because I would impress upon you the tragedy of it all. It is this very condition that leads to cursing. It is because man is guilty of death that the wrath of God is upon him. It is because of this our world is as it is tonight. It is because of this that everybody who dies in that condition will go to hell and will endure cursing to all eternity. The tragedy of it all. Our refusal, our failure to learn and to face the facts. But oh, let me try to impress it by just holding before you the merest lineaments of the opposite, the man in Christ. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. I needn't keep you, you see, it's the exact opposite of everything that I've been saying. Go right through your Bible. Look at the men who've been blessed instead of being cursed. Read the history of the centuries. Look at the men whose lives have been blessing in this world and who've enjoyed life and have been the greatest benefactors of the human race. They all can be brought to a common denominator and they're all in this one verse of the book of the prophet Jeremiah. What are the characteristics of the man who's blessed? It's just this. He's a man who realizes his own smallness. He's a man who realizes his own hopelessness. He's a man who realizes his own failure. He's a man who realizes his own helplessness. The greatest men the world has ever seen, the greatest saints have always been most conscious of their sinfulness and their unworthiness. They have cried out with the Apostle Paul, O wretched men that I am. They see how little they've done. They see how much evil they've done. They admit and confess that they've set their wills against God's, that they've done things they knew were wrong and then have suffered for it and suffered rightly. They have said that their whole nature is twisted and perverted. They say there is a law in my members dragging me down that when good is present with me and when I'm anxious to do good that evil is also present with me. The good that I would I do not and the evil that I would not that I do. The greatest men are the men who say I am rotten, I am vile, I am foul, foul and full of sin I am. I am all unrighteousness. There is no health in me. That's what they've said. And the result is they haven't a vestige of confidence in themselves. They have said, I can't save myself. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. They say all my righteousness is but as filthy rags. They say that having made all their efforts, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. The man who is blessed of God is the man who realizes that he is nothing. He is the poor in spirit. As the Lord said in the Sermon on the Mount, the first words he uttered, Blessed are the poor in spirit. They've got no spirit left in them. They say, they say, I'm finished, I'm done for. I've tried, I've failed. What's the point of going on? I can do nothing. I'm at the end of my tether. They have no confidence in themselves, in their own efforts, in their own strivings, in themselves nor in any other men. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save. And thou alone. 
Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord. Having come to the end of himself and his abilities and powers, having realized that though he may be very clever and very learned and very moral, that he's no better than the man who lives in the gutters of life and that all his understanding is useless, having admitted all his failure and his weakness, he looks to the Lord. He listens to the Lord. He's ready to listen. He no longer stands, as it were, and looks down upon the word of God. He drops on his knees and he's prepared to listen to it. He no longer sits as a judge upon the bench and says, What is this? Let me consider it and analyze it and give my verdict. He humbles himself beneath it and says, Everything it says about me is true. And when he listens to the Lord Jesus Christ saying, except he be converted and become as little children. Far from resenting it, he says, thank God that that's the only condition. For I feel I am but a little child. I don't understand God is so great and I'm so small. Life is so big and I'm so insignificant. As a child, yes, I'll come. I'll listen. He looks to the Lord. He listens to the message. He doesn't come and listen to the preaching of the gospel in order to turn it down, but rather in order to learn something and to find truth. He's receptive. He's prepared to open his heart to it. And he believes it and accepts it. And he relies entirely and only upon the Lord Jesus Christ. For when he comes thus, he's told that God has so loved him that he sent his only begotten son into the world to deal with his predicament. That the problem which man has failed to solve, God has solved in Christ. He sent out his son, made him like a man, and sent him to the cross to bear the punishment of sin and all its consequences. And he has done it, and he is told that it's been done for him, and he believes it, though he doesn't understand it. He accepts it. Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is. That's what he says. Nothing in my hand and I bring simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly, wash me, Saviour, or I die. That's it. He trusts in the Lord, and the Lord is his only hope. And because he believes and knows that the Lord has done this for him, he loves the Lord. And his one delight is to please him. Yes, the Lord still says things that he can't understand. There is a prohibition which says, you shan't do that. But he no longer queries it, as Adam and Eve did listening to the devil. He says, there are certain things I don't understand. Evidently, I'm not meant to understand them. I don't always understand God's ways. They seem to me sometimes to be wrong. But the moment I say that, I withdraw it. I say, they're not wrong. It's all you cannot understand. But I know this. That whatever should happen to me, all things work together for good to them that love God. I can't explain it to you. I can't give you a rational explanation in detail. But I know that that is true. My heart centers on the Lord. And I know that he has loved me with an everlasting love. And that all he orders is for my benefit. I believe I shall have an understanding in glory, but not until then. You see, that's the difference between the man who's blessed and the man who's cursed. The man who's cursed says, I don't understand this. Why this? As a man put it to me outside London only this last week. He once attended a place of worship. He came to speak to me. I said, how are things going? He said, I'm finished with it all. I said, this is amazing. Why have you finished? He said, I finished with God. I said, why have you finished with God? He said, if God is God and if there is a God, why spastic children? You see, he doesn't trust God because he doesn't understand. Because his mind is too small to explain, he turns his back upon God and he is cursed.
I don't understand. I can't explain everything. But I know this, that the Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God, and he saw spastic children and everything like that in this world of time, and yet he said, God is love, and that's enough for me. I don't understand. I can't explain. But I don't question and query God. My heart is toward him. I trust him. My hope is in him. I know that all is right with God and that a day will come when I shall understand everything. It isn't that I haven't even an intellectual satisfaction, satisfaction as far as I myself am concerned even with regard to that problem. But I'm saying that even if I hadn't got it, it would make no difference. Because I recognize my limits and God's eternity. Beloved friends, is your heart, are your hearts right with God? Are you trusting yourself or are you trusting God? On what are you relying? If you would be blessed of God, renounce yourself, deny yourself, take up the cross and follow Christ. Believe in him utterly, absolutely and surrender your whole self mind and will and heart entirely to him and he will bless you. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.